Trinity, and it is a joy uh, to be with you this morning. Today I get to preach the Word, and I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. But before I get there, I have a couple, uh, a couple things I wanted to say. First of all, um, as some of you, or hopefully most of you guys know, uh, I'm taking a team to Bolivia this Friday, and so we're going to be flying out on Friday. I'm so excited about it. And um, we asked last week for four drills um, to, yeah, I asked for four used battery-operated drills uh, that we could use in Bolivia. I have so far received seven of them, and I know there's a couple more on the way. So thank you guys so much yeah. for your generosity. We, let, me, let me assure you, those drills will be used, and they will be serving the people of Bolivia for a long time. So thank you so much for your generosity, your abundant generosity. I also, you know, and this uh, is something I wanted to do. He has no idea that I'm doing this, but I also wanted to mention someone that is unfortunately not coming to our trip. Logan Kennelly, who's serving in the back. Uh, he's actually wearing his Bolivia t-shirt, but he tore his ACL. And he wasn't able to join us. But you know what? He had already paid 100% of the trip. And when I asked him, hey, do you want me to reimburse it? He said, no, no, no. I want you to take it. And so thank you, Logan. Uh, we will miss you, but we're so thankful for the impact that your giving is going to be having in Bolivia. So thank you so much, brother. Uh, second, I have an announcement. We are starting our community groups again. As you know, here at uh, Trinity, our discipleship, our, our structure of discipleship, if you will, is three-pronged. First, we have the Word of God, the preached Word on Sunday mornings. Secondly, uh, three times a year, we have what we call equip classes, which Megan just announced a minute ago. And uh, in those equip classes, we do theological teaching. And thirdly, we have what we call community groups. Our community groups are groups of people which are meant to be the context for ministry for the people of God. This is when we gather together outside on Sunday, when we look at the Word, when we pray together, when we do life together. And I want to invite you today to participate in our community groups that will be starting on August 2nd. Now, I'm going to ask every one of you, to sign up for these community groups. We are starting from scratch. So everyone, whether you've been a part of a community group or you never have been part of a community group, I want to invite you. Would you please consider joining one of our community groups? Our community groups are spread around the city. So please find one that is uh, close to you, one that, is, um, one that is easy for you to commit to. And I want to ask you, please, please sign up and come. <laughs> Here's why. At Trinity, like I mentioned our structure, if you will, for discipleship includes community groups. And so not only are community groups a blessing to you in that you get intentional Christian fellowship, but they're also part of our structure of care for you. What that means is that if you choose to not participate in a community group, not only are you robbing yourself from Christian fellowship from week to week, but you're actually stepping out of our structure of care. Which means that as a church, it is all the harder for us to care for you in a way uh, that is effective and that glorifies the Lord. And so would you please consider joining one of our community groups? Let me tell you, uh, you guys know I'm new here in town. I mean, kind of new. It's almost been two years since we moved here. Uh, but some of the closest relationships that the Lord has br brought to not only my family, but to my family, it's been through community groups. So don't rob yourself from that blessing, and I want to encourage you, as your pastor, please consider joining a community group. With that said, how about we jump into the Word? Those were just announcements, so don't be timing me, okay? Uh, 
Let's, uh, let's jump into the Word uh, this morning. This morning, we will continue our series on the book of Titus. The letter of Titus is a short little letter that Paul wrote to one of his apprentices, Titus. Uh, and as you know, in the last few weeks, we have been going through this letter systematically as we do here at Trinity. In chapter 1, we saw the importance of the Word of God. We saw how important sound doctrine is for the life of the believer, and that sound doctrine leads us to godliness. The way that Tim puts it is that sound doctrine should land in our living room, right? Then in chapter 2, we saw how sound doctrine affects relationships within the church. For a few weeks, we talked about how older men are to relate with the church, how older women are to, to relate to the church. Then, two weeks ago, I had the joy of talking about how younger women and younger men are to relate to the church. And today, we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look at how we should relate not only to those in the church, but to those outside the church. And so, uh, that is what we're going to be doing this morning. Now, one of the things that I want you to notice from this passage is that this passage reminds us the fact that our personal holiness is evangelistic by nature. By that, I mean that as believers, our conduct will either point people to Jesus or away from Jesus. The way we behave as Christians will either cause people to want to know Jesus or it will bring reproach to Jesus. So in today's passage, Paul will talk about the importance of our conduct and how we relate to those outside the church. Now, two weeks ago, I told you, I got a text message that said, buddy, I am praying for you. I wish I had gotten that text this week, okay? Because I fear that some of it might be offensive to some. Now, here's where I want to be careful. Tim mentioned last week, I believe, that sometimes the gospel is offensive by nature. Now, my attempt is that if anybody walks away offended from here today, it's because of the gospel, not because of me. And so would you give me grace as I approach this passage? But let us, let us look at the passage. I want us to read the first three verses of chapter 3. So would you stand with me as we read the word of the Lord? Uh, we're going to have them on the screen too if you want to follow. But this is what it says. Um, and now... It's going to talk about them, them being the church of Crete, the Cretans, okay? It says this, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, uh, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and I want to ask you, Father, that as I look at your word and as I, as I preach from your word, I pray, Father, that if there is anything that I say that comes from my own understanding, Father, that comes from my own ideas, Lord, I pray that that would fall to the ground and be forgotten. I pray that you would make us a people, Lord, that, that has uh, discernment, Father, that, that filters everything they hear through your holy word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning in the name of your son, Jesus Amen. Amen. All righty. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, in this section, Paul is telling us how we should relate to those outside the church. And so he starts by telling us something really fun to do. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And our American hearts go like, Ugh. right? 
Notice that Paul starts this chapter with the words, remind them, which implies that this is not new information for the church of Crete. And church, though none of the things that we will be looking at today are new for most of us, they are still very relevant today. So I would ask you, would you lean in? The first instruction that Paul gives Titus is a fun one for us today. He says that Christians should be submissive to rulers and authorities. Oh boy. Now, there are passages in Scripture that are at times difficult to really understand. It's hard sometimes to understand really what Scripture is asking of us. But let me tell you, this passage is not one of those. This is a clear passage. As a matter of fact, the more you look into the original language, the clearer and the more forceful the message is. And as much as we don't like to hear it, he is telling us to submit to rulers and authorities. Meaning, those who are in government, those who are in authority over us. Now, some of you might be thinking, submit to my leaders? Submit to our rulers and authorities? Clearly, Paul didn't know who would be leading our nation in 2023. But can I remind you, can I remind you who the ruler was at the time of Paul? At the time of Paul, the emperor was Nero. Nero. (laughs) If you don't know this guy, let me tell you, he is a piece of work. His reign was marked by extravagant and wasteful lifestyle. He was known for his sexual immorality, for his party, for his orgies. He was uh, into debauchery. Let's just put it that way. But you might be thinking, well, Christian, well, Rome didn't really need a pastor emperor, did they? They needed a powerful leader. Well, can I just tell you that the morality of our leaders will always affect the rest of us. Now, Nero's lavish lifestyle led him to draining the Roman treasury. And he then burdened the citizens with excessive taxes to make up for it. Now, this is not all Nero did. Nero also believed, uh, he is believed to have killed his own mother, Agrippina the Younger. And he was known for assassinating his political opponents. I'm telling you, this dude was a whole thing. On top of that, Nero was the Caesar that initiated the first major persecution of Christians. He would flog Christians. He'd torture them. He would light them on fire. He would feed them to the animals. And he would hurt Christians in a variety of ways that were very violent. You know what? It was under this very emperor. It was under Nero that Paul himself was imprisoned. He was persecuted and eventually executed. What does Paul do? He points on him and says, submit. I'm telling you, our American hearts in 2023, we don't like that. Now Paul tells us to submit to him, not out of ignorance, not because he doesn't know who our leaders are. Paul knows exactly what it's like to submit to ungodly and immoral authorities. But what does it mean to submit What does it mean to be submissive to these rulers and authorities? Well, there's another passage in Scripture in Romans 13 where Paul will actually talk about this. He will expand on this very topic. Romans 13, 1, verses 1 through 5, it says this. It says, let every person, 
be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Are you guys hearing this? And those that exist have been instituted by who? By God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist, uh, the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then um, do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Church, if you look at Scripture, God is not ignorant of the heart of the rulers. God is not ignorant to the abuse of certain emperors. May I remind you of Pharaoh? May I remind you of Nebuchadnezzar? May I remind you of every single uh, person in authority in the, New, in the Old and New Testament are people who are, who are broken. Even David, the example of a king. We just recently saw the mess he made of that nation. God is not ignorant of the brokenness of our systems and authorities. And yet his call for us today is to Submit to our rulers and authorities. This makes it all the more clear, right? Just in case we thought we could find a loophole, maybe thinking, well, Titus, you know, only applies to those in the church of Crete. No, but Paul is telling us in Romans that this instruction is for every person, including you and me. Not only does it tell us to submit to our authorities, but he says that our governing authorities were instituted by God himself. In practice, do you know what this means? This means that in 2016, Donald J. Trump was appointed by God. This means that four years later, Joseph R. Biden was appointed by God. This means that whoever gets elected next year will have been appointed by God himself, whether we like it or not. And the Bible calls us to submit to them. I told you it was going to be a little offensive. So two weeks ago, we talked about submission. And we're talking about submission again today. But what does that mean in practice? Does it mean being quiet, weak, and subservient? No. Biblical submission is not a mark of weakness. Submission is not passive subservience. The other day, Karen was actually reminding me how being submissive actually requires a lot of strength and self-control. Submission does not equal weakness. Biblical submission is not weakness, but it is a deference to authority placed there by God. An author I read defines submission as an expression of gifts in support of a higher purpose. And another author says, the ideal is a submitted life that brings glory and honor to God by respecting the order the Creator instituted. So you see, by submitting to our authorities, we are telling God that we trust Him, even when we don't understand the things that are happening around us. When we submit to our governing authorities, we are telling God that we trust Him even when things are bad because we know that ultimately He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all things, 
including who will be elected next year. You will not be taking him by surprise, let me tell you. So Paul is not calling us to be politically subservient or disengaged. This is a call for respect and civility. We are first and foremost Christians. That is our identity. That is what should define us. Our hearts should be moved by the gospel more than they are moved by the news. Because ultimately, our allegiance is primarily to God, not to partisan politics. But we are also Americans. And as such, we do have responsibility towards our government. Now, you might be thinking Christian, but you have an accent. I know. (laughs) I'm an American too. And let me tell you, I had to earn it. Now, we as Americans have a political system that Paul did not have. So it is good and appropriate to be politically involved. It is good and appropriate to be informed and engaged. We can and should vote for those we consider most closely aligned with the kingdom of God. We should. We can and should keep our government accountable through the democratic means at our disposal. This glorifies God. This is a good stewardship of the things that we have been given. We can honor God with our political engagement as long, and I want you to hear this, as long as it doesn't take over our thoughts, our hearts, and our attention. Let me tell you something. Some of you might be thinking, oh, this guy's getting political. No, I'm not. You know, the gospel is not partisan. But it is political in that by nature it will affect every area of our lives. And so the gospel is what should inform the way that we vote, the way that we involve involve ourselves in local politics. The gospel should inform everything we do, we say, how we act, how we submit. I honestly think that that Paul would shudder if he saw the way Christians engage in politics today. He would be shocked by some of the bumper stickers that are so proudly displayed in church parking lots. He would be writing us a letter if he spent three minutes on Facebook, Twitter, or threads if he's cool. And you know what? If anyone had a reason to go burn down a Walgreens or to storm the Roman Senate, it was Paul. And yet, he calls us to submission. Justin Gibbon, he says this, he says, In politics, civility shows itself in respect for a disagreement and in granting others the right to express it. Civility shows itself when we acknowledge the best in our political opponent's line of thinking and the best in our political opponents themselves. Civility is mercy and forgiveness. It is a form of public grace. Church, as the electoral season draws near, let us, the church of Jesus Christ, resolve to honor God in our political engagement. As I mentioned earlier, our conduct will either point people to or away from Christ. So let's make sure we honor him in how we engage with the news. Let's let our hearts be formed by the word of God and not the news. Let us lace our conversations with love, with kindness, with gentleness, and guard our hearts from hate, from judgment, and from speaking evil of others, as Paul is about to tell us. When we as Christians are harsh, when we as Christians are unkind in the way that we talk about those we disagree with, 
Not only does it say a lot about where our hearts and our hopes are, but it will also misrepresent our faith. When we are gullible, or even worse, when we are willing to share misinformation because it aligns with our own political views or the agenda that we support, this will affect the way people will listen to you when you tell them about the beautiful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was warning the Cretans to submit to the governing authorities because he knew that if they were rebellious against the government, not only would they be putting themselves in danger, but it could cause the doors of the gospel to be closed. Our holiness, church, is a conduct. Sorry, our, our holiness and conduct is evangelistic. So let me ask you to consider this morning. Is the way that you talk about politics conducive to hope? Is it conducive to the gospel? Or has it become an obstacle for you to reach those around you? Has politics become such an idol that it gets on the way with the way that you talk to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your own children? Now, let me clarify something before we move on. Submitting to the rulers and authorities has very clear limits. We are not called to submitting to authorities when they call us to act against the word of God. In scripture, there are many examples when the people of God stood against the power of evil and injustice when they were asked to do things that did not honor the Lord. Unfortunately, we have to keep going because I've only covered a little bit. <laughs> now, Paul not only talks about how we should relate to our governors or to our, to our rulers, but he also talks about how we ought to relate to our neighbors. So first, Paul tells us how to relate to authorities, and now he's telling us a few other things. He says, uh, he, he calls us actually to be obedient. He calls us to be ready for every good work, which we will address in just a minute. He calls us to speak evil of no one, even your political foes, even on Twitter. He calls us to avoid quarreling. He tells us to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to our old people. Can I ask you this morning, does this list reflect you? Does it reflect your heart? Does it actually reflect the church today? Is this how the world sees us? Church, you've heard me say this before, but telling it like it is, is not a fruit of the Spirit. This attitude that is applauded today in our culture is radically anti-gospel. Paul calls us to avoid quarreling, to avoid speaking evil of others. He calls us towards gentleness and to show courtesy. Sure, this might not get you a podcast or a lot of followers on social media, but this is the way of the gospel. Church, the failures of those around us are no excuse for violence for insult, or slander. The gospel calls us to love and forbearance. It calls us not to retaliate, but instead to be ready for every good work. So let us be careful with what we are feeding our hearts and souls. If you have the news on all day, you might be letting the news be what shapes your heart, what shapes your thoughts, what shapes your loves. I fear that many Christians' primary means of discipleship is the news. 
And it doesn't matter if you're being discipled by Fox News, CNN, or CNBC. This is terrible news for the church. Instead, Paul says that we are to be ready for every good work. In the words of Jeremiah 29, this means that we should seek the welfare of the city. In the words of Jesus, it means that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Again, as I said said two weeks ago, John Piper says that when God's love fills our heart, it always overflows into service to others. In verse 3, and I want to read verse 3 because I think I skipped it earlier. It says, says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In verse 3, we see that one of the reasons we are called to love and respect towards our neighbor and authorities is that even if they are foolish, even if they are acting sinfully, even if they are immoral, we have to remember that we were there at some point. That was us. In verse 3, then Paul says that we were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice, being hated by others, and hating others. Man, shouldn't we then uh, show grace towards those who act like this today? Verse 3 should humble us in the way that we treat others. It should remind us of God's patient, loving kindness towards us when we were a mess. As a matter of fact, God is still working on us. We are a work in progress. We're not saying this out of perfection. Church, our neighbors need the gospel. Not a beating. Your neighbor doesn't need a lecture. He needs the love of Christ. But now in verses 4 through 7, Paul will give us an even better motivation for for the life he is calling us to. And that motivation is unrivaled because this motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see in verses 4 through 7 that the good news of the gospel is the basis for our good conduct. Verses 4 through 7, it says this. It says, but, and it starts with one of my favorite words in the Bible. But when the goodness of God, sorry, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, because according to his, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Yes. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Church. Yes. Notice this. After listing how we used to be, How broken we were. Paul writes one of my favorite words in the Bible. The word, but. You see, we were a mess, but God. We were a mess, but then the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Tim mentioned this word last week, the word appear. Because this word appear uh, speaks of the appearance of a hero or a Savior. And isn't that exactly what happened to us? We were a mess. Mm -hmm. According to Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. At the perfect time, Christ came down. He came down to our mess. He condescended to our brokenness, and he saved us. You know what? This might be you today. You might find yourself in the middle of this broken mess. You might be finding yourself on the road or the path to destruction. But what if maybe, just maybe, today is the day for that but God moment in your life? What if God is drawing you to himself this morning? If this is you, If you feel the Lord calling you today, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But let's keep going. Notice how Paul goes from the good news to a warning. Right? He tells us, but God, and now he he jumps immediately into a warning. He anticipates immediately the default temptation of our hearts. Notice this. He goes from telling us God's love for us in our salvation to clarifying that God saved us not because of our works, but according to His own mercy. Isn't it funny how our hearts are so often tempted to think that we can earn God's favor? I know I feel that, that, that temptation in my heart often. Paul knows that. So he reminds us that we were not saved because we were good, because we were righteous, because we were cute. God saved us because he is good. And this is good news that will change the way we interact with others. You see, the gospel is the motivator for a godly life. See, knowing that our salvation does not depend on us is not only good because it keeps us humble, but it is good because the crushing weight of thinking that our salvation depends on our works is absolutely unbearable. I know this because this was me. I thought God's love, was the, uh, God's love for me would change at the drop of a hat. I used to think God just kept track of my, my good works. And when I messed up, I don't love you anymore. Now he loves me. Now he doesn't. It was miserable. I remember as a teenager going to bed in tears. Because I would go over my, in, in my head, I would go over my day and realize how deeply I had failed God. And in my head, that meant, well, God doesn't love me anymore. Now, thinking you can save yourself through your works is an unbelievable burden for you to carry. And I want to free you from that this morning. I want you to hear this. You do not have to earn what has already been given to you. You do not have to earn what is a gift during our time in Malaysia, some of you guys know we, we used to live in Malaysia. And during our time there, I was uh, talking to a young Afghan girl. Her name was Arezu. She was 14 years old. And she was a Muslim girl who really was interested in Christianity. She was really struggling with her faith. You know, she, she would tell me, you know, Christian, when I hear you speak, I think Christianity is true. But then I go home and I hear my grandmother speak and I think Islam is true. Eventually... By the grace of God, she gave her life to Christ. But here's the thing. As you may already know, in Islam, salvation is earned. In Islam, 
your good works and your bad work, your, you know, your good deeds and bad deeds are measured. And if you have more good works than bad works, then you are saved. You throw yourself into the mercy of Allah. And so in one of our conversations, she was really bothered by this. She, she, she was really struggling between Christianity and Islam. And in one of our conversations, I asked her, if you were to live the rest of your life as the perfect Muslim girl, if you were not to sin ever again, if you prayed five times a day and never missed anything, and you did everything right for the rest of your life, do you know for sure that you would be saved? And she told me, with tears in her eyes, she told me, no. I'll never know if I've done enough. Can you imagine the crushing weight on the shoulders of this 14-year-old girl? Now, the reason I'm telling you about this, about our fears, is that even though we're not Muslim, we often are in practice. We often put this burden upon our shoulders that the Bible doesn't. You know, when we think of our standing before God, we often look at our works, we look at our life, we look at our performance, we look at how much we've prayed, we look at how much we've read the Bible this week. And we fear that God won't love us because we haven't done enough. Church, we think God's love depends on our performance. And that is a miserable way to live. Because you know what? Even if we were to be perfect from now on until the end of life, it will never be enough to earn God's love. Church, can I remind you this morning that your salvation is not your own doing? It's not at all. Your salvation is all God's doing. It's all God. You get no credit for it, actually. I'm sorry. In fact, I want you to see here in the text, I want you to see how the three persons in the Trinity are involved in our salvation. This is so much all of God that the three persons in the Trinity are involved in our salvation. It says that the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, God the Father, appeared. The Holy Spirit that washes us and regenerates us. And He was Jesus who poured out the Holy Spirit on us. You see this? God the Father in His kindness determined that He would save us. In His kindness, He then sent His Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that you and I failed so miserably to live and to die the death that you and I deserved. But our salvation doesn't end at the cross. Our salvation continues in that the Holy Spirit is actively renewing us today. And He is enabling us to do good works. Because you see, even though good works do not save us, they are the natural result of the gospel in our lives. Which leads me to my third point. My third point is this, good works are the natural result of the good news of the gospel. Verses 8 and 9 say this, It says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish uh, controversies, and I just went through, yeah, it says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, as they are unprofitable and worthless. And we are going to stop there. I want you to see that now, 
Paul doubles down on the importance of good works in the life of the believer. This is really interesting because Paul just told us, he just reminded us that we are not saved by our works. And in the very next sentence, he tells us to devote ourselves to good works. So which one is it, Paul? Well, what he's saying here is that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. You see, good works are not a prerequisite to our salvation, but a byproduct of our salvation. Good works are not only the right, they're not only not the right currency to buy God's favor and love, but God's favor and love is not even on sale. It's not for sale. He gives us grace as a gift that cannot be purchased. So the life of a Christian is marked by glad submission to God's rule and a desire to serve our neighbors. And our good works are but a reflection of the goodness of God. So church, we are called to good works. Just in order to, uh, just not in order to earn our salvation. As Dallas Willard famously put it, he said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace transforms us It transforms our selfish hearts into selflessness and service for others. In His grace, God doesn't say to us, I love you because of the things that you do for me. He instead says, child, I love you. Now be like me. You see the difference? And just as Christ loved us sacrificially, we too are to love those around us. He calls us to, in humility, count others as more important than us. Church, This type of life, a life marked by good works, Paul tells us, is excellent and profitable for people. So you see, the Christian life should be marked by a dying to ourselves and living for the sake of others. What this means is that our community should benefit from Christians being in it. Christians are not a burden to the community. We are a benefit. You know what? We can only live that way only when we know that Christ has provided all we need. We don't do this out of our own strength, out of our own desires. I can't find it in me. If I'm honest, I am a selfish guy. So that's my wife. She's serving right now, but maybe don't ask her. (laughs) But the reality is that we cannot find this in ourselves. This comes from God. It is the work of God in our hearts that will lead us to pursue the good of others. But you know what is not profitable for everyone? Verse 9. Verse 9 tells us to avoid foolish controversies, to avoid genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Kind of sounds like Twitter, doesn't it? Church, there are conversations, there are debates There are quarrels that are unprofitable to those around us, but are also detrimental to our souls. You see what that is? There There are conversations and quarrels that are unbecoming of the Christian. There are attitudes in the way that we interact with others that are unbecoming of a person that knows the Lord. 
Church, the Christian doesn't only pursue good works, but, it also, but the Christian also avoids a useless fighting and debating that has permeated not only our politics, but our daily lives. And boy, how refreshing would it be for our society today if we lived as Christ is calling us to? What if instead of becoming like the world in our speech, we resolve to model the kind of speech that honors God with civility, gentleness, and humility? Wouldn't that greatly benefit our world today? As I'm drawing to a close, I want, I want you to notice that uh, we're stopping in verse 9, which means there's still six verses left in this letter that we haven't covered. But next week, Tim will circle back to this passage and he'll pick up the remaining verses. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this short letter, it's only two pages. But you know it packs a punch. This letter is filled with imperatives, means meaning it's filled with instructions or things for us to do or to not do. But please don't miss the fact that in Scripture, imperatives always flow out of indicatives. Meaning that the Bible doesn't call you to do anything that then it won't point you to. Let me say that again. The Bible doesn't call you to do anything without pointing you to how God has already provided all you need to do. Uh, it has provided for all that you need to do, all that he asks you to do. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is one of some of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says this. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want you to hear this. God has already provided all things for the way that you are to live in your neighborhood, at home, in your country, in your city. And he has provided all things through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Church, this means that everything you need to live a godly life, a godly life that gives glory to God, has already been provided for you through the knowledge of Christ. Which means that what the Bible is calling you to do is not to muster from within you a determination to do things right. It's not calling you to do more. It's not calling you to do better. It is a call to look intently at what Christ has already done for us. It is a call for you to rest in the work of Christ at the cross and not on your own effort and performance. So this morning... We looked at a few different instructions, some of which may have been convicting to you. But what should our response be? First, if you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, we need to repent of any sin that we may have been convicted. Secondly, and most importantly, we should behold the beauty of Christ. Because you see, it is by looking at Him that we are transformed into His image. John Owen said this, and it's a bit of a lengthy quote, so I invite you to lean in. But John Owen said this. He says, how then can we behold the glory of Christ? We need firstly, a spiritual understanding of His glory as revealed in Scripture. Secondly, we need to think much about Him if we, if we wish to enjoy Him fully. If we are satisfied with vague ideas about Him, we shall find no transforming power communicated to us. 
But when we cling wholeheartedly to Him, and our minds are filled with thoughts of Him, and we constantly delight ourselves in Him, the spiritual power will flow from Him to purify our hearts, increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, and sometimes fill us with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia or C.S. Lewis. I am. But if you are, you may remember in uh, his book, Prince Caspian, when Lucy Pevensey finally finds, uh, finds Aslan. She comes to Aslan, the, 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 the lion, and she says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. Welcome, child, he said, as being Aslan. Aslan said, Lucy, uh, Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, Aslan wasn't bigger. But as Lucy grew, her understanding of Aslan was greater. And in the same way, the more we behold Christ, the more we look at what he has done for us, what he has already provided for us, the more beautiful he will be. The more we see his glory, the more satisfaction we will find in him. And the more we behold him and find satisfaction in him, the more like him we will become. This church is what transforms our loves and our desires. This is what changes the way that we relate to others. This is what softens us, not into weakness, but into biblical love and gentleness. Church, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the way that you speak to us from your living word. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts, Father, so that we may become the kind of people that give you glory, not only in our political engagement, Father, but the way that we interact with our neighbor. May we be like Christ. Father, like Christ said, by our love we shall be known. I pray, Father, that this church, Trinity Community Church, might be known in the community for being loving and kind and gentle and bold in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Church, would you stand as we respond to the word with singing?